Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. This episode has been waiting patiently for quite a while now. I think we recorded this back in perhaps early December, possibly even November. But what I do remember is that I really enjoyed the pace of our conversation with Jamie. We're grateful to him for sharing his own personal experiences and for reflecting so openly. We journey briefly through his writing on slow teaching, teacher resilience, and of course, his Beyond Survival podcast. There's lots of connections with other conversations, and in particular, the conversation with Professor Alison Clark um, around slow pedagogy. So I hope you enjoy. Good evening, Jimmy. How are you? I'm good, Billy. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, it's, it's great that you could join us. I appreciate you giving up your time. Um, why don't we start by just, if you tell us very briefly who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. Um, so, hello, everybody. I'm uh, Jamie Tom, and I was a teacher and a leader in schools for about 12 years. And I left the classroom in August of this year to set up a new PGE at uh, Napier University here in Edinburgh. That's a bit of a change, and, and we'll maybe come back to that later on. Um, sounds <laughs> exciting. So... Um... Well, what we wanted to start tonight with, Jamie, is sort of building on a conversation that we recently had with Professor Alison Clark. We were talking about what she calls slow pedagogy um, and that relationship with time and education. It's a word we use a lot. It means a lot of different things to different people. Um, so your first book is titled Slow Teaching. Yeah. Um, tell us about it. What does that mean to you? Um, that's a great qu- first question, Billy. Launches into it. Um, great into it. I might, if, if you don't mind, just share a little bit about my background first. So I started uh, teaching, I trained to teach in central London, and I had a bit of an odd uh, first five years of my career. So um, about 10 years ago now, when I was 26, I got promoted to be uh, an assistant head teacher, like a senior leader um, in this school. Um, and I really... Uh, just worked myself to the bone fundamentally and I completely and utterly burnt out and I burnt out for lots of different reasons it was it was fundamentally quite a toxic environment and um, it was one that was relentless in terms of the hours the expectations the pressure on staff so um, I, I basically colossally burnt out and then um, I've always found with writing uh, that um, in many ways it's almost like a deeply selfish process because you're trying to work through some <laughs> deep-rooted issues. So 
the purpose of starting a blog, which was slowteaching.co.uk, and the purpose of writing the book was, I guess, for me, I, I fundamentally wanted to slow down. Yeah. I found it really hard after I left that school to readjust into being a classroom teacher again, first of all, but also not having that relentless pace of life as your kind of way of being. Um, and I wanted to look at that slow lens through all aspects of education and through teaching. So what does it mean to slow yourself down as a as an individual? What does it mean to slow down your teaching? You know, even to the way you speak and the way you try and kind of live your life. So you're not frequently rushing around with your head lost in a kind of a maze of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Um and what I would say with that is it's really, really hard. And and I wrote that book kind of about well, five years ago now. Um, and it's something I still wrestle with. You know, I still, I think that'll be a lifelong thing and it is for everyone. Yeah. Trying to actually be as present as possible, you know, as a, as a father, as a person working with new teachers in all the things I do, you know, trying to be present, trying to not rush your way through life and trying to savor things and and to be slow it sounds lovely doesn't it but it's much harder to put into practice i think i, I can see that it would be but i can also see uh, i can imagine that i can see lots of nodding heads when you talk about that relentless pace and desire to slow but what, what how do you achieve that 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 goal i mean you know how uh, if i tomorrow was to set out being intentional about slowing my day, what advice would you give? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so how can you fundamentally slow down? And um, I think this, it starts from the very start of the day for me, you know, instead of the temptation to check emails, instead of the temptation to instantly start moving fast, it's about kind of, gradually building yourself into the day and then I think you know for when you're working professionally in a school environment your life is very much dictated by a school bell but that doesn't mean that everything within that school bell time needs to be done at 100 miles an hour mm-hmm. and I've always found that actually especially if I talk from a secondary context because that's what I'm used to um, kind of young people in a secondary school are rushing around by default. They're rushing through the corridors, they're rushing to get to the next lesson, and they're on a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A relentless wheel. And I actually think part of what can help us as teachers slow ourselves down is recognising that. And recognising that when we are that little bit slower, in the way we communicate to young people, the way we notice them, the way we introduce concepts, the way we explain things, the way we ask questions and leave time for processing and thinking, that helps us. And, you know, even this podcast, you know, I was feeling really a wee bit nervous and a wee bit wired about coming on. And now as I'm talking, I'm really conscious of that. And, you know, I suppose from my perspective, the more I slow myself down, the physicality of it, the easier that becomes, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. It, you can you can tell that you have 
thought about it and that you've put time and effort into practicing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's really hard. It is difficult. And I think it's really difficult for teachers. But the other thing I would say as well is just um, if you slow yourself down and you allow yourself to, you recognize much more positive things and you're more deliberate about allowing those positive things into your lives. Because as teachers, the, the, the negativity bias, I, I still think of that as the fast brain and all these negative things that we constantly hoover up and think, oh, God, I'm teaching S3 again, and it's raining, and, you know, all this stuff that makes it hard. But if you if you just give yourself the time to reflect on all the brilliant things you will have done throughout your school day and the impact you will have had on lots and lots of young people, then that, I think, can only be a really positive thing. I often talk about we can fall into the trap of joining the wrong dots in our day, like a dot to dot, you know, you can join all those negative dots or things that didn't quite go according to plan or the things you've still got to do that you meant to do that day. But actually, in amongst all of those, there are all those positive dots as well of things that surprised you or those little moments. And sometimes we we join the wrong dots on the day and come away with the sense of oh, that was a bad day or a hard day or a hard week. But actually, when we look back, there are maybe other dots that we're we're missing in our day. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah. And those those dots, if you allow yourself to zoom in on them and hold on to them, they start to kind of multiply and you start to see all these lovely, positive moments and you're more intentional about it fundamentally. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I have a copy of your book here. Um, <laughs> um, I'm just I'm going to pick up on the bit underneath the title of slow teaching it's it's slow teaching on finding calm clarity and impact in the classroom and I guess I'm interested just to pick up on you know this isn't just about slowing down in a you know for for a mindfulness although that's good in its itself but it's also about the impact that that can have in in the classroom and I'm just interested what have you noticed in that slowing down process? What what impact have you have you seen for students, for yourself, for relationships, for for anything? Yeah, in terms of impact, yeah. I I always kind of use the analogy of the tortoise and the hare, and the kind of the Aesop's fable, and the hare is the kind of really fast paced moving teacher who teaches, you know, kind of rapid paced lessons and who's got kids hanging from the chandeliers because it's all moving so quickly. And my contrast is the is the kind of uh, tortoise teacher. Um, and for me, if uh, to summarise the tortoise teacher, it's not about kind of everything moving at about two miles an hour, but for me, it's looking a lot more strategically and slowing yourself to plan over time. One of the things about my first school is you had to submit your lesson plans on a daily basis and they were scrutinised by people in black suits who looked at the lessons. And that made me really obsessed with t teaching one-off lessons. Mm. Whereas if you allow yourself to think more strategically and with the long-term perspective, you're actually thinking much more about where are my kids going over time and how am I planning to address all the needs they get need over time? Yeah. And that really helps in terms of your stress levels, your anxiety levels, everything. So there's the, the planning side of it, 
But for me, there's also the, the fundamentals of good classroom teaching. So I've mentioned this a little bit already, so apologies if I'm <clears throat> repeating myself, but even a skill like questioning, you know, we, we ask so many questions every single day as teachers, but we fire them out over and over again. Um, and for me, a lot about what makes really wonderful teaching is encouraging deep thinking and channeling attention. And if you allow a little bit of time after asking questions, after somebody's given a really brilliant answer, you know, to just kind of soak it all up mm. and to let kids think, then you're deepening the quality of the thinking in the room. And there's so many elements, like even if you're modeling something as a teacher, now I've been in so many lessons where a teacher might prepare the model but they flash it up like some kind of blue pizza thing. This is what I produced earlier. And then they flash it away. And the kids are kind of going, oh, that looks good, but it's done nothing for me in terms of deepening my understanding. But some of the best lessons I've, you know, I've taught myself have been where I've invested a quite significant amount of time in talking through that modeling process, showing them a model and then going through it really carefully. Um, so I think the impact comes from enabling deep thinking and all the fantastic qualities I think we want to see our classrooms as developing with young people like even listening you know how are we encouraging young people to really deepen their listening skills yeah. and they can only do that in a in a almost like a quite kind of a classroom that's like a haven of escapism from how fast-paced their lives are I'm rambling now, so I hope that makes some no. sense. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not rambling at all. I want to come to your haven of escapism. <laughs> <laughs> did I really say haven of escapism? I think I did, didn't I? Oh, no. Uh. <laughs> no, and um, I could probably guarantee you my niece would want to come as well. She um, She's in primary two, and her teacher does mindfulness kind of meditation with them. And she feedback at parents evening was that she will often ask for that when the classroom gets busy and noisy she'll ask if we if the class can do meditation so i i, I think fantastic. There's, there's a lot in in what you're saying and I've, I've just started listening to a book called how to listen by oscar trimboli so normally when i listen to a book i kind of go through the whole thing in quite intense usually but I'm trying to follow his instructions, which was um, his advice is that you don't do that with this book. And actually you take a week to listen to each chapter. So you may listen to it all in one go, but then you wait a week before you come back to the next one. Um, because he's talking about going, creating space for that depth and that integration and that sort of thinking about the learning rather than trying to get it all done quickly, actually take the time for it to settle, um, which I'm, I'm, I'll, I like that that was introduced as part of the book and encouraged as, as part of the book, because I think we we can now so much information is so readily available. It's easy to skip across as many things as possible and actually not go to any great depth with, with anything. Mm. Well, that sounds fantastic. I want that book. That sounds great. <laughs> it begs the question, actually, Jimmy, <clears throat> as a secondary practitioner, you know, you might have an answer to, to this, but the question in my head when I'm listening to you speak is, uh, yeah, what is the rush? Why does it have to be a rush? We actually had a conversation recently with someone reflecting on the, you know, what what was modelled as 
best practice at its time, which was that every minute's a prisoner in a in a lesson for a young person, you know. So as if almost by by design, their biology is different, that they can be at 100% for every minute of their learning every single day. And what is the rush? I guess in a secondary context, teachers would probably turn and say to you, well, we've got exams to prepare for and a curriculum to get through. And um, But, you know, so it's what is, is the tail wagging a dog in that sense? Yeah, it's really hard. And it's performativity, isn't it? It's the sense yeah. that, you know, we've got these little tight spaces of lessons where we need to get as much out of young people as possible. And my argument to that has always been, well, if you are doing all these, you know, these kind of slow philosophy, the strategic planning, the quality in terms of how you're using that time, then that will enable that performativity, as it were. You know, it will help young people to do well when it comes to exams. But also, you know, it, it, there's the, the issue with, you know, mental health for young people and anxiety levels and stress levels. And it's always, I've found, you know, as we creep towards the senior school and teacher's sense of urgency and teacher says, right, I've got to, you've got to do this, boom, boom, boom. And the more we manifest that, the more of that kind of fast pressure we put on young people, the more that they respond with their feelings of anxiety and, and all those things. So... I think we've got to model calm spaces and organized spaces and spaces that are deep thinking and that will help them get to the end point. Yeah. And you're now in the very privileged position of supporting and teaching new teachers. How how do you take this idea of slow teaching and slow pedagogy into your work at, at that level? Yes, another great question. Um, yeah, I feel I think you're you're right in the sense of it's a real privilege, and I feel very lucky to be doing that um, in terms of supporting new teachers at the start of their careers. Um, and I think a lot of what we've talked about already really does apply to new teachers. You know, it's, I think I'm realizing that the more I go through this year, it's such a demanding and stressful year for them, and learning to become a teacher is. Uh, <laughs> We put people off here, but it's it's really quite terrifying. There's such a lot of expectation on them of things they need to know, and they need to do it so quickly. And mm-hmm. um, so, I've kind of looked at this year really quite holistically in thinking, right? How am I supporting them with their pedagogical skills, and doing that in a way that is manageable, that is going to incrementally build those skills. Because it's an initial teacher education that we are focused on. And I think, you know, what we do at Napier, that's really important to us. That it's not, you know, you cannot, I can't, we can't send off teachers into, in some kind of factory, you know, ready made for their first year of teaching, because that's not practical or possible. So, what are the essentials really we're thinking that they need to know and be confident on that will help them? So really slowing down on things like behaviour and building up a repertoire of ways to manage behaviour, I think has been really important to us. Uh, and when I say holistic guidance, a lot of it is about, you know, what what's going to support them in terms of their well-being through this year. Uh, and I have, I think I'd probably swing too far that way, just because my own experience that I've talked about at the start of my career, 
it means such a lot to me to make sure that it's not just about teachers and the, you know, we send them off, we forget about them. For me, it's very much a five-year journey and what is going to happen in their first five years and how can we support that and fuel them with strategies to cope with all of the different stress points that come along with those initial years in, in teaching. Because, you know, we've fundamentally, we've got a, we've got an issue with retention, we've got an issue getting teachers in, but also we've got an issue with retention. So what are we doing about it really fundamentally in terms of, first of all, I think selling the profession, not selling is the wrong word, but actually promoting this amazing profession, getting trying to get as many people in to teaching as possible. But then also allowing them the time and the scope to develop over the first few years of their careers, I think is really, really important. It's a crucial time, isn't it? It's when you form a lot of um, a lot of the habits that you'll call on through time. Uh, maybe you can form some some negative habits, possibly. Mm. I think it's a time when people are really impressionable and they need to be encouraged and supported by teachers who are more experienced, you know, and, and teachers who are more experienced need to be really positive about the job that they've chosen to to be in and chosen to stay in. Um, and it's not, I mean, there, there is a narrative at the moment, like many walks of life, I guess, Jamie, that, you know, teachers are tired and under pressure. And, and, and that's true. You know, that is true. But that can't be the only narrative because we continue to do the work that, that's needed. And the children that we're serving at this moment in time only have this chance with us. So, you know, it, it brings me to the name of your podcast, um, Beyond Surviving, which which I love, right? Because it's it's not a job that you just survive. It's not about getting through the days and the weeks until the next holiday. You know, trying to find the joy in it. So, so tell us a bit about that, um, fellow podcaster. What what prompted you to get <laughs> behind the mic, and and what what have you learned about you know? I suppose, what's the driver of it? What what do you want teachers to know about this key stage through your podcast? Yeah. Um, I think just before I answer that one, Billy, I would, I would just acknowledge that one of the things that I've really loved about working with new teachers is is now that they're in schools, um, actually seeing the, the amazing mentoring and the amazing people who are mentoring new teachers in schools. And I think they do such a brilliant job because you're right, it is teachers are really time pressed, you know, and there, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. And actually, you know, in terms of the, the mentors that I've been working with and, and are working with our students, it's just the compassion they've got, the patience they've got, the mm -hmm. desire to, you know, what you said about provide good advice, be that role model for somebody who is coming into school for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's been really, really quite inspiring. Um, so yeah, so just to acknowledge that, um, and yeah, the, the the podcast I think has has was has come from that idea of how can I get as many really knowledgeable, fantastic people in education to come on and offer some advice to new teachers. So usually there's like a central question that they answer, and it's all really short, so under forty minutes, um, about being a new teacher, um, and that's where that kind of holistic development. I wanted to do something that we'd look at 
you know, things like positive psychology, all the way from to kind of, you know, just the practicalities of how do I, you know, a couple of episodes, it was just case studies on behavior. What do I do when kids won't stop talking? You know, all the stuff that we really need to get at the start of our careers, but it's really, really, you know, really, really tough. Um, so, so yeah, that's the, that's the kind of notion behind it, a really holistic look at how can we support and give advice to new teachers in a space that is without judgment and was, it's just about support, I think. Yeah, I'm sure people are getting a lot from, from listening. And you mentioned, obviously, one of the key things that I've found over you know many years that, that new teachers focus in on is this idea that I suppose there's one of them and there's 20 or 30 young people. So, you know, that how do we, in old language, control a class? And, um, you know, I often break the news to people, well, actually, it's very difficult to control yourself, never mind other people, never mind teenagers or youngsters, never mind 30 of them. What you can do is set the conditions. Um, so, so as well as that sort of behavioural element that's really, really important, what, what other areas do you think are vital to get in and around for mentors and, and people that are supporting early early years practitioners? Or early yeah. Great question, yeah. And, and so I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this as well because I know you do lots of work with new teachers. Um, so what are the kind of essentials? I think you've already touched on it on in actually being that, because I being that voice of positivity, what I found is that the we talked about it a bit earlier but the negativity bias new teachers are coming in they spend quite a lot of time watching expert teachers which is an important part of the you know learning to teach but also it's a terrifying part you know it's like watching absolutely magnificent practitioners make it look seamless and often they don't get the time to actually have a conversation with those expert teachers about how they've created that you know, ethos or how they manage the behavior in the room. They just yeah. see it. And then they're kind of superimposed into that position without having all the experience there. And um, so I think it's breaking it down. I think the more really good expert mentors can break down the complexity of excellent classroom teaching, the more helpful it is for new teachers. Um, but I was talking about positivity. And I think because their minds are attuned to the negativity actually when you give feedback to new teachers and i appreciate it quite often because it's time rushed a lot a lot it often comes out as a stream of conscious of kind of like you didn't do this you didn't do this you didn't do this you didn't do this and then they find that they're almost like crushed and they're kind of going oh there's nothing good about my teaching at all uh so shining a light on some of the good stuff you know even the fact that they you know, it can be anything really, can be really simple, but yeah, for the making to build new relationships. Because I think that's vital to building their self-efficacy. Um, alongside, obviously, all the stuff they need to do to improve. But again, when making that guidance as clear as possible. So if it's you need to work on your questioning strategies, you know, what does that mean? what kind of questioning strategies would be helpful to start to develop. So it's really hard, I think, and I appreciate that, but balancing that really clear feedback with positivity as well. 
Sarah, what do you think? What have you found with your work with new teachers? Um, I, I totally agree on that kind of feedback point is that sometimes it can feel like, a, I, I've heard it described as like a tsunami of feedback um, as a new teacher, either in ITE or as a as a probationer. And, and I guess there's an element of that that is the case that, you know, you're, you are being evaluated and, and assessed in different ways. So there is a lot of kind of emphasis on, on the feedback and that kind of Im improvement. But I think sometimes it can end up being in the space of there's just it's cognitive overload and then they don't know where to start and they don't know what to do and they don't know what any of those things mean. And that's, you know, it's not any criticism on anybody giving the, the, the feedback, um, but sometimes I think it just becomes overwhelming. And then almost they get, I don't, can't remember the words you use, but almost kind of crushed by it. It's hard to get back up again. And it's finding that balance between feedback that they can use because they understand it. It makes sense and it's meaningful. Um, and they feel like they, they know where to go with it. Because I think that's always the hard bit. You can get feedback, but you've got to know what to do with that and have the space to try try it out, really, which is the same in the classroom for our students yeah definitely I think you hit the nail on the head with the tsunami of feedback yeah. that's such a great way to express it and yeah. it, it I always think and I did it when I was mentoring in schools um, and I think because I've got such more of a window into it this year it's really raw you know I'm kind of seeing it for the first time your empathy levels are, are much more heightened because yeah. you actually think back to when you were doing that and what you needed and wanted from the people who were supporting you and I think what you've said there comes a lot down to just recognizing how fragile sometimes it can be at the start of your teaching career and actually young you know as wonderful as you know as, as teenagers and children are they do almost sniff out it's like, <laughs> like primitive isn't it they sniff out like a lack of confidence yeah and we're always thinking about strategies in the university setting about how can we develop all the stuff that gives you the pretense of confidence, you know, the body language, the way you use your voice, the way you manage your, your room and stuff like that. But if you struggle with behaviour and then you're struggling with the feedback, all that acting stuff becomes much more complex and harder. So, yeah, it's tricky. It is. Um, and a huge, huge part of it is that kind of self-awareness and sense of, of self. And I think that's another thing. If you're if you're being observed, you there's there's a differential there of one person was doing and one person was seeing. And actually, that places you in a different a different place in a conversation about the feedback. And I think that's where and nobody ever particularly enjoys it. But that's where video can be really helpful, because when you see it and you're looking at it together, you can then unpick what you're seeing and what's going on. Whereas when it's a, a conversation from an observation, sometimes you can end up in, you know, that kind of challenge of, well, this is what happened and that wasn't how it felt to the person or it wasn't how they experienced it or it wasn't what they saw. And the video kind of gives you that neutral um, lens that you can't get without it. Definitely. <laughs> unless, unless anybody's mastered out of body experiences. <laughs> I have such an important point. And I also think, um, just listening to you talk there, one of the things that struck me is, you know, you're kind of talking about a reciprocal conversation if you base it on video. Yeah. And I've, I've done a lot of work over the past few years of just 
learning to coach and I'm doing a kind of diploma in coaching and a lot about dialogue because mm-hmm. moving out of the classroom actually is one of the things I've found you know quite really enjoyable but hard in a way that everything is dialogue based and you're coming from the teacher point of view into having lots and lots of conversations and dialogue and I think really really good feedback you know for new teachers is based on dialogue it's based on trying to create almost that coaching space you know that lack of judgment that actually wanting to understand from their point of view what was the intention when they did that in the lesson and what happened as a result of that and because I always know the worst feedback I got as a teacher was when somebody came in with a kind of and I did it when I was swanning around as a as a kind of senior leader before I was ready to even tie my own shoes but I would go in with my clipboard and I would say oh you didn't do this 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 and this you know against the school's criteria for what makes a godlike lesson Um, and it's really demoralizing for teachers because there's no dialogue about it it's just judgment and I think even in the very first year in the training year teachers need new teachers need to engage in rich dialogue about their teacher because that's what will really help them to develop and improve as well. I wonder if our podcast is about changing conversations, Jamie. So I wonder if we could tie up the first part of it and just encourage people that there is a conversation when we're having feedback because it it's not a driving test. Right? It's not a one-off. I mean, a driving test needs to be pretty rigid, I guess. You know, Quite significant health and safety there. Um, but if we're talking about developing a professional, and that's career-long development, surely we're developing the capacity within the individual to, to reflect and improve. So it should be a conversation. And I wonder if it's a conversation that sh- we should have a little bit more slowly, going back to the first part of our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yes, I'm 100% there, Lily. I absolutely love it. I think... Again, if you can create that space, and again, it's like a, it's the, the space you would create if you were coaching someone. You wouldn't do that in a busy staff room, shoved in a corner. You know, you create the physical space to have a conversation, and then yeah, all, all the stuff we those slow squirrels, slow squirrels, uh, those slow skills can speak, yeah. but like listening to each other and being reciprocal and respectful and and having a having a really deep conversation about. What was the thinking behind that? I love those conversations. Probably because I'm a bit of a nerd, but I, I love those conversations about teaching that are protracted and like myopic in terms of examining things. And I come out of them thinking, oh, I've learned such a lot from that conversation. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. And as you, you touched on mentors kind of earlier, and I think most most teachers and most mentors love a good conversation about pedagogy and about the why and the how and what was the thinking and where did we get to from where we thought we were going to get to most teachers kind of love that so there's a there's a real opportunity when you are in that mentoring kind of support relationship to yeah to to fuel that fire I guess yes and fuel that joy because that's a joyful thing to do to have a really deep human conversation that very often I find in schools you struggle to have them because you're the things that I mentioned earlier about your time press, there's the performance, there's all the, your, your stack of marking you have to get through. Um, but from a mentor's point of view and the 
whoever you're mentoring, it's a really deep learning process. Because I remember when I was, you know, when I was mentoring teachers in school, I was learning such a huge amount from them because it was making me rethink what I was doing in the classroom. So it's a kind of win-win for everybody. Yeah. And of course, there's a strong reciprocal relationship between learning and well-being. Um, and your your latest book, and I'm, I'm tempted to ask you how you make time to write all of these books, but I suspect I may not have answer to that. But <laughs> your, your most recent book is on teacher resilience. Um, and I guess I'm starting to see now maybe the thread of how this has come about and how this ties back into your, you know, into your story in terms of what you were saying about that first post and, and kind of burnout and that writing is a space to kind of process that and, you know, develop that and think about that. So, um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on what we need to be that that kind of thriving profession? Yeah, that was such a great segue. This a very professional podcast. I'm very impressed. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll answer your first question. How do I make the time for that? Well, you'll notice there's been like a three-year gap. I had three <laughs> books that all came out very shortly after each other. And then I've, I've now got two children who are under four. So mm-hmm. uh, it's difficult to find the time now. Um, so, yeah, how, how what I guess what creates and what helps with resilience? Um from my perspective, I think there's two aspects to this. You know, there's the school culture, there's the school systems, there's the way that the school functions. And that's massive in terms of impacting and influencing on teacher well-being. Mm-hmm. And as I say, one of the reasons I burnt out so spectacularly is because it was a culture where the head teacher was in at six in the morning and left about 10 at night. And he sat in his office and he watched everybody come and go. Uh, and it was a terrible culture. And it's very difficult to have well, be a well teacher if you're doing it within that kind of culture. Um, the, the book that Teacher Resilience, though, was all about, for me, individual ownership. Um, and I'm really interested in kind of stoicism and Buddhist philosophy and all that sort of stuff. And I won't go down that rabbit hole, but... What I would say is that for me, kind of a lot of what well-being is, is about working out what works for you fundamentally. And that can never be a sort of top-down approach in the sense of, you know, I don't know, yoga or whatever, you know, go to staff yoga. And I like yoga and I'm not dismissing yoga at all, but if you force staff into doing yeah. things and if you say this is what well-being is then it doesn't work because I think it de-intellectualizes the profession and teachers and that's really important that well-being is for the individual so however you want to work as an individual is really important and you set the parameters and you decide that if you want to be a teacher who comes in early and leaves on the bell or comes in on the bell and leaves on the bell because you've got kids at home, then you find the way of working that works for you. I think that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Some of the things, though, that I think we've touched on running through the conversation that I talk a lot about in the book were things like, you know, your sphere of influence and what you can control and what you can't control. And I'm really interested in kind of emotional regulation for teachers. How can you help? 
be that calm person and be the person who is that role model of emotion for young people. I think that's really important. And, you know, very cheesy stuff, but stuff like self-compassion, how can you, because I think teachers are really harsh on themselves. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of perfectionists in teaching. Mm-hmm. And actually, how can you, you know, channel and almost fight against that inner voice that is a little bit harsh and prescriptive? And lots of things we've talked about already run through that, you know, recognising all the positive impact yeah. you're having in your day, jotting down a couple of things at the end of the day that you've really done well with. Um, and and I think, although I'm talking about individuals and finding your own way of working, it's relationships as well. And I think relationships are so integral to thriving as a teacher yeah. and the community you build as a school or as a department, or the people who work around you. Yeah. Because the more insular you get, the more you burrow yourself away in your own kind of very stressful head and classroom, the harder yeah. it is to build resilience. So, yeah. yeah, I think relationships are really important as well. Yeah, and I, I think that for me relates to that sense of identity and the the challenge around enmeshment and actually how sometimes and it's it's not just teachers I guess that do this but lots of lots of professions probably mostly the kind of caring people oriented professions is you can get very your identity can become very tied up in your role and your giving and supporting of others and then you can kind of almost lose yourself in that and and then if your identity is all tied up in that and that doesn't go brilliantly for a day, that's a huge knock on your whole identity and sense of self as opposed to a bad day. But those relationships and having a broad range of relationships and, and interests outside of work and connections outside of work perhaps helps to um, moderate that a little bit. Oh, that's such a brilliant point. And I'll be very open here in that when I moved out of that very toxic school, yeah. into another school I really really struggled and I had to you know I had to go into therapy and one of the things that was a discussion there was that and I remember he drew a circle he was like how would you define yourself in this circle and in the first five years of my career it was you know it was teaching mm-hmm. and I don't know how I'm still married to my wonderful wife I don't know how she put up with me but there was nothing outside of that Mm. And that that is, that has really become a vital part of kind of how I manage my own well-being. What are the different parts of myself? Yeah. Because yeah, and I think it's something that's totally understandable for teachers mm. and new teachers. You you're so invested in wanting to do well as a teacher that you lose track that there's all these other parts to life that you need to draw on and. And that also makes you a much more interesting teacher yeah. and a much have much more energy as a teacher yeah. that young people feed off as well. And I think that's a really important point. Yeah. It's that kind of trade-off, isn't it, sometimes of making that decision to to stop or to to go home or to do something else rather than to do the work-related tasks that you could do, knowing that actually that will give you energy. But it's such a, sometimes that's a real mental kind of, tension and challenge to to kind of reconcile that actually by by stepping away or doing something completely different I will be better tomorrow at what I'm doing but it's often a really hard one for people to do yes 
And it, it comes back to the perfectionist thing again that drives us as, as teachers. Um, but you're right, it's it sort of, somebody was talking to me this the other day and called it a have a to-do list and a to-don't list. And what's on your to-don't list? And I think that's quite a nice, helpful way to think about it because then you you stop burrowing in yourself into a kind of a hole. And yeah, and and again, it's these things don't just happen. And I think the more intentional you are about that, and that's why I think you know mapping out your day and, and mapping out the end point and going right at seven o'clock, six o'clock, whenever. I'm not looking at any more emails. I'm not doing anything. That's you know, you're packaging it away a little bit yeah. and that's the stop button and then you move forward from there. Yeah. It is, as you say, a lifelong practice. Yes, <laughs> it, it definitely is. You know, and I, I often find myself saying that to people as well, that, you know, these things will improve and things will get better and you will have to keep revisiting it because things keep changing and evolving and it is a lifelong practice, ultimately. Yeah. Definitely. And sometimes I think, oh, I'm getting quite good at this switching off thing. And then I'll have a week where I'm stressed out and it's ter- and I'm, I'm just having a nightmare and all my emails at 10 o'clock and everything kind of falls down from then. It's really interesting. And if you can notice that, that mm-hmm. when you are feeling really stressed and you are working late into the night and it's impacting your sleeping, just asking yourself, what's, what's my teaching life? What's my limp? What's my teaching like? What am I living like? How am I kind of manifesting for the people around me? And I think the more you realise and more notice how things drop when you haven't got that balance, then the more likely you are to persevere with it. And when you have that, when you knock down a few times, you come back to it and you keep rolling with it because it is worth it, I think. Absolutely. Um I could happily talk all night. Um, <laughs> there's there's many more avenues or rabbit holes, as you called them, around stoicism. <laughs> probably happily fall down, but we won't. Um, but I do want to say thank you for your presence and your pace and your poise this evening, and for actually helping us all to slow down and really reflect on on what we're doing. And it's been nice to, I guess, join those dots around the different elements of your work and your your writing, um, and then how that all kind of manifests itself in your in your new current role and of course your podcast as well so thank you for thank you for sharing and thank you for your time no thank you Sarah I really really enjoyed that thank you you've really made me think Stephen so I really appreciate that thank you pleasure um before you go we ask all of our guests um two questions the first one is what are you reading at the moment um I've got it right here I'll wave it I've got um it's Barbara Fredrickson, um, who's a kind of professor in positive psychology mm-hmm. and done lots of amazing work on positivity, which we've talked a lot about. Um, so this is this is her book. It's called Positivity. And it's it's really interesting, the kind of the science of positivity and why it's important and how to be that wee bit more positive. And my wife saw me reading it. And she went, oh, what nonsense are you reading now? So so there you go. Not a glowing <laughs> review from my wife, but it's very good. <laughs> Um, and the second question is, do you have a quote or a message that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, yes. So um, basically, I'm really interested in the work of Nancy Klein. So she's done lots of wonderful work about thinking environments and creating environments in which real rich thinking can take place. 
And it's something I've thought a lot about in terms of working with new teachers and how to encourage that depth of thinking. Um, and the quotation, which I've got written down right here, which I think is really, really powerful, is the quality of our attention determines the quality of other people's thinking. Um, and actually, you guys, you guys have modelled it beautifully tonight in the sense of if you ask really good questions and then give space and attention, you can really get somebody thinking and talking and articulating what they want to explore. And I think for us as teachers, that's really, really useful in the classroom setting with young people, but also in the dialogues we have with each other as professionals as well. Yeah, absolutely. I am a big fan of Nancy Klein and um, her work. And it actually influenced a lot of my work in the way I worked as an educational psychologist as well. So I've been a big fan for, for many, many years. And the quote that I always use of Nancy's is that the quality of all of our actions is underpinned by the quality of our thinking. Oh, I love it. We're clearly going to have to now spend the rest of the night chatting about all these different rabbit holes that we've gone down here. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, there could be many other conversations, but uh, <laughs> before we do disappear down one of those rabbit holes, um, just to thank you very much for your for your time and your presence, as I said. So thank you. Very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us, and we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe, and take good care.